Hey everybody, welcome to the very first episode of Amateur Hour with Jordan Perez. I'm your host, I literally just said it, but I'm Jordan, for those of you who don't know me. I'm really excited to debut this very first episode of the show. It's been a real work in progress, as the title suggests. It's an amateur golf-focused podcast made by a total amateur herself at the podcast game and golf to be quite fair. (laughs) I'm so grateful to be with the Fire Pit Collective now and to bring everyone into this fun little world of amateur golf through my eyes. We're going to start things off with a little bit of discourse on NIL. For this episode, I chatted with a player, the USGA, and a business about what NIL meant for every single one of them. For players, it seems to mean a cool component to varying levels of social media platforms. For small businesses, it means tapping into the micro-influencer niche as a lucrative strategy. And for the USGA, it meant tapping into the accessibility and health of the overall game. We'll get into the origin story as it relates to the rules of amateur status, the sort of deals and perspectives regarding NIL journeys through players' eyes, and what NIL can and will mean to small businesses. At the end of the day, NIL is a landscape that just about changes by the hour, if we're being real. But peep the latest here as it goes for college golf. There's so much I learned over the course of conducting these interviews and others and writing the feature story, which you can check out at firepitcollective.com. So stick with me. I'll be weaving in and out to kind of guide you through this as we go subject by subject. And this is going to be a fun one. Thanks for sticking around and hope you enjoy it. Craig Winter is the Senior Director of the Rules of Golf and Amateur Status with the USGA. He dives into the origins of the USGA's modernization of name image likeness rules, the timeline of the turnaround on waiving Rule 6 in response to the passage of the NCAA interim policy, and what the upcoming modernization means for amateur golfers at large. Firstly, just kind of kind of your role within itself working within the rules of amateurs and it's probably a turbulent role within itself. Like there, it's always a changing landscape, but in particular towards this year, I'm sure that's it. Then I always been an interesting catalyst towards it. Um, just how turbulent has it become? Well, I think, I think at the USGA, we, we've, you know, with, with what, with what I do in my role leading the rules department, uh, you know, we work very closely with the RNA as well because we jointly administer these rules as well as the rules of golf and handicapping and equipment rules. We have been aware of of what we're trying to do for some time. We, as soon as we finished the 2019 rules of golf, we a lot of the same folks work in in governance and in similar areas. So we pivoted to what we wanted to do to modernize the rules of amateur status and this particular area of NIL, we had been looking at it since 2016 or so and, and became really comfortable with some pretty significant changes. If you're aware of what, what our proposal is, we released that publicly earlier um, this year and, and our, I guess it was in 2020. And, and ultimately what we're looking to do is to completely lift NIL rules, which it goes even a further step than, than where the NCAA is. So by the time that they got to a point where the interim position came out. Um, we had we had already been in collaboration with NCA staff. We, we have consulting members on our committee as well. So we had a pretty good idea of some of the things they were thinking of. There were a few wrinkles in there on the, the announcement that week. So we had to take a weekend to sort it out for sure. But it wasn't necessarily a surprise to us. It was just trying to figure out the best way for our rules, the rules of amateur status. And when I say R, I'm speaking to the RNA and the USGA's rules. Uh, to, to fit within the college landscape, because we don't actually want to be disruptive. 
to the golf world. College golf, as great as it is, it's it's a small part of golf. You know, the, the rules of amateur status apply from when you're a young junior golfer all the way up to when you're playing high-level senior amateur golf, and they are club golf all the way up to the the play that we saw at Oakmont at the U.S. Amateur recently. So it's a it's a wide scope of golf. NCA sports are pretty specific, very high level, but very specific. And we wanted to try to, what we'll say, keep what was happening with NIL and how quickly that change was happening within the college space. And that's why we decided to do what we did. So you had this groundwork laid out for some time, you said since 2016? That's when we, as organizing um, bodies, governing bodies uh, of amateur golf, we, we decided that we needed to make some pretty significant changes. Uh, so that was really when that started. Our our rules are not yet approved. We're going to be releasing new rules in 2023. So we're not quite to that step yet, which is why we couldn't just have a full sale lift of what is currently rule six. That's what covers advertising and promotion and the rules of amateur status. So golf being a little bit different than most sports. You know, if you look at college, you know, college football, basketball landscape, that's a lot of what drove the name image likeness, the legislation, and obviously a lot of the work with the NCAA. Golf was kind of an afterthought in all of that. But when you look at the scope of land of college sports, there aren't other sports that have amateur rules that sit outside of the college landscape. So golf puts itself in the, a little bit different box there. And that's why we did have to react because we have rules that are currently far more restrictive than where the NCA is with NIL at this point. So we had to do something. We felt like it was good to keep it specific to the college game. We were already comfortable. We're going to probably get there in 23. So it was a, a fairly, I'm sorry, 22. So it was a fairly simple move for us to just put what was happening in the NCA within a box uh, and allow college athletes to benefit within what the NCA was allowing. And then yet at the same time, keep the framework that we have for the rest of the amateur sport, amateur golf world. Like you said, golf does put itself in a bit of a unique space being that there are like three sort of different bodies to consult. You know, there's a student's individual institution, there's the USGA, and then there's the NCAA itself, which adds an interesting layer. And I'll touch on that a little bit later. Um, but kind of in regards to the timeline, I wanna scale back a little bit. So you said this, it started in 2016. Um, one notable event that kind of stuck out to me when I was coming through some things was the Lucy Lee Apple Watch uh, situation. Um, that was kind of in the middle of that. Did that add any level of perspective as far as um, reviewing rule six and those conversations? Yeah, Jordan, that's a good question. So Lucy was one of many cases that that we would look at on a pretty regular basis. If I mean, it was certainly more high profile than a lot of what we, we, we look at, but the the social media space, which was kind of where that launched, um, that, that, that space for talented junior golfers is, uh, it, it's hard to keep clean from rule six infractions. And one, one thing I will note, um, just for, for listeners, rule six is the rule, again, it's specific in the rules of amateur status to the name image likeness space. It, it only applies to golfers who are, are considered to have golf skill or reputation. And that's, that's loosely, that's the elite player. So loosely obviously fit into that when she was an amateur golfer. And there's a lot of other juniors that fit into that as well. As an elite player, they have to worry about this extra set of rules because in the way that we look at it, they're the ones that can actually benefit from this. They're, they're the ones that are, uh, the, the, you know, the businesses may be attracted to them. They want to put logos on their clothes as they're playing. And so Lucy being a very high profile target, whether it's stateside or even internationally, um, that one was, was more high profile, but it's not that unique from what we look at on a, 
I'd say a week to week basis almost where there's players that get into situations because they feel like they're okay to do something. And yet, unfortunately, that's not, that's not okay in college golf, at least up until July. And it wasn't okay in the rules of amateur status. So we have had a policy of uh, trying to educate, often trying to make right, if I can say it that way, after something has happened and Lucy fit into that bucket as well. It just happened to be something that the world was paying attention to the world of golf, small world of golf. Um, yet that happens on a pretty regular basis with us. So we, as I said, when we started, we knew we needed to make change in this area. It was just part of this entire process of looking at the, the scope of the, the entire rules and considering how we could fit in the name image likeness side into the entire revision. Christian Heavens is the founder of Tourline Golf with an incredible background outside of business. His collegiate career at Georgetown College led him to the PGA Tour Canada and other international tours, winning 22 times and spawned appearances on Holy Moly and Big Break Myrtle Beach. After injury derailed his professional career for some time, he used COVID lockdown as an opportunity to start Tourline Golf, a company that specializes in a chalk putting line. Christian just launched Tourline Golf's Collegiate Ambassador Program, and details why pursuing the market of college golfers was a no-brainer for him. How did the connections that you made on different tours kind of, and even in college, like get you to be able to market this product better? Yeah, so like I'm really close with um, Harold Varner. Um, he's helped me do some marketing. Uh, like I mentioned, Lonzo Griffin, my roommate, I actually just talked to him today um, about the product. He was an investor that really helped me out because it's definitely pretty expensive. Um, I, I invested quite a, a lot of my money, especially, I mean, I was sitting around not spending money and then I was getting unemployment as well as most people were that weren't able to work, um, that first couple of months. So I was putting that towards the business learning, doing the logo, um, getting the tour lines from overseas, um, designing the product, which costs a lot. Um, trial, the trial and errors, I had to have three, four or five different, models come in um, made out of different materials so it was expensive and I really appreciate him for that help because without him I'd be in a big hole um but then just meeting all my friends right I, I'm on tour so I, I, I was used to playing on tour so I got a lot of friends um Paula Rito who I met on um I was a contestant on Holy Moly on ABC season two um, she was on the show with me, and she's played in the Olympics, and now she's on the LPGA Tour. She's a really big advocate and supporter of the product as well. And just a lot of mini tour guys having it, for sure. That helps out a lot. And now you've ventured into the collegiate space with uh, the debut of NIL, and now that college athletes can profit off of likeness and, or likenesses and different endorsements, um, you recently brought on Marissa Wensler. What's that been like, and what inspired you to kind of go in that direction? Yeah, I mean, this is definitely the, I mean, a completely new era for us all, right? Nobody really, this is just brand new for everyone. I think it's something that players deserve to have, um, be able to, you know, profit off of their um, name, image, and likeness. And Marissa, she's built a great brand. Um, she's a great player for one. That's really what it, I've seen her scores. I've seen her swing. Um, and I went to school in Kentucky. So that's, I think I didn't meet her through someone directly, but, um, through the post on Instagram and mutual friends on Instagram, I, I, I just met her cause I was a big fan. I went to school right next to Lexington, Kentucky. So a lot of my peers and friends are from, um, went to UK and part of the big blue nation. Um, as, as well as my golf coach, Larry Ward, 
So I, there was a great connection there, and I, I wanted to see her do well. And you know what I found is marketing is so huge for 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 a company. Um, if nobody knows your company's out there, nobody's. I mean, going to buy the products. Um, I didn't like and see much success by paying Facebook to kind of promote the ads and do things that way. Um, and even when I have a couple of like my the tour players promote and post it, um, I think with social media, it's a term called like, micro-influencers. Um, they seem to be more effective with getting people to kind of uh, take action on certain things. Um, like whenever I have... A, a tour player posts on them versus a mini tour player that has a lot of close friends and close family members and people that they've actually known and met follow them. Um, that's actually brought more traction and brought more sales to my product. So I looked at our followers and a lot of the college players, like these are college, they have a lot of college friends. They have a lot of kids that are close to their age that look up to them and watch them play in tournaments um, that they have a close reach to and feel more connected to. Um, and I think that makes them a little more, I guess, influential, but it's just more effective. Um, I, I just have more success with that as far as marketing goes. I chatted with Jonathan Shusky, also known as Buckets, a 39-year-old college golfer and 20-year military veteran. Buckets' story is already an incredible one, but it provides him a really unique edge in the NIL space, especially with the partnerships he's got going on right now. He weighs in on those and maybe some of the odd ones that have come into his inbox. Kind of wanted to start off by asking you where your NIL journey began. Did it start with Barstool? Did it start with any of your other partners? Where did that begin? So it did start with Barstool. Um, I, I saw a couple of tweets. Um, I don't think I actually saw the initial announcement from Dave, um, but I saw Riggs tweet about a couple of golfers i believe one was a a a female golfer at auburn i think the other was maybe a player from oklahoma uh one of the men's players and so i I read that tweet and then i kind of backtracked and figured out what was happening and i said man like this is if there's ever been a moment for you to pull the military card this is the one um and it just so happened like all that opened up on july 1st and so you're heading into july 4th weekend and I remember I retweeted Riggs, and my tweet said, imagine being the company that signs a 20-year bet on 4th of July weekend. And within a couple of hours, I got a response back from him, and he said he wanted me to be on the team. And then, you know, I did the application and all the stuff that everybody's done, but I was I was like one of the first people in the door. And like, and I think if you'll notice, like they're still doing division one athletes. Like I don't even know if they've gotten to a lot of the division two and division three people yet, but I kind of got scooted to the front of the line, which was really cool. And I got a lot of, a lot of social media traffic because they were posting graphics with me being a barstool athlete, all the stuff. And so, um, and so, yeah, a couple of other opportunities um, popped up and, and people hit me up on, you know, Instagram or Twitter or whatever. And, um, you know, one of those is, uh, swing juice, which is an apparel company. They do baseball and golf apparel. And, and, um, and so now any chance I get, I'm sporting their apparel and, and posting on, you know, social media and they're sending me some gear and, and stuff like that. And, um, but no, yeah, it, it really started with the Barstool thing. And I think, you know, what they did, I think it was genius. Um, I think right away, I don't think any of the athletes thought 
that they were going to monetize anything through Barstool. But I think what Barstool did was offer college athletes a, a place to market themselves for free um, on a gigantic scale because Barstool's got you know millions of followers on all these platforms, you know, Twitter, Instagram, whatever it may be. And so to have you know, these different podcasts and these different little entities of Barstool. And, and the great part for me is Barstool has a military podcast and a golf podcast, and they both were, you know, putting my name on their stuff, which was great. So um, the, the amount of branding and marketing that you that you got in that deal was, was worth doing it. I mean, you, just, you couldn't say no. What kind of resulted after that, after they had started sharing your story, posting you and all of that marketing? Um, so, I mean, it was, uh, there were, there were some folks that reached out and, you know, and uh, I, I won't name any specific companies, but some of them, it just didn't, well, I'll say this, it didn't really align with my values and I don't think it aligned with the NCAA and my university's guidelines on what you can and can't do. <laughs> um, and, and I think some of them reached out to me because I'm 39 years old and they thought, Hey, this might be okay if we reach out to the old guy. Uh, but yeah, still no, I'm, I'm still a student athlete like everybody else. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, it was, I mean, it was just a, a lot of really good attention. Um, and, and look, I mean, at the end of the day, we're like college athletes have this incredible opportunity now. And, um, uh, you know, I, I remember sitting down and talking about it with my wife. I, I had never really thought about trying to monetize. Like I had read about the NIL stuff. I didn't think it was something that was going to affect me until that week um, when I saw those tweets from Barstool. And um, and that's when it kind of hit me like, man, like people are going to want to know your story and people are going to people are going to you know, some people are going to relate to it. Some people are going to, you know, just the fact that you were a soldier and served your country and all this stuff like they're going to they're going to want to attach themselves to that. And, um, and I'm not going to lie to you. Like, I don't, I don't even, I, I've never really pulled the military card like that. But, um, but like I said, there's this incredible opportunity and, and we've all got to find a way to market or brand ourselves. Uh, and, and that was it for me. Like that was, I'm not an 18 year old kid signing to play college football at Georgia or Alabama. So I had to find another way to do it. And, and that was it. <laughs> NIL has allowed so many different collegians to diversify their brands and explore different opportunities that they didn't have the chance to before. But as it goes with golf, there was a sort of tension and a bubble that was about to burst leading up to this point. But just what was it that motivated the USGA to make this decision? Can you give some insight as to, obviously, that Lucy Lee made headlines for being the elite player that she was and that working with such a large company and being Apple. Um, but if you're saying that you guys deal with this on a pretty regular basis, what's kind of the average um, dilemma or situation that comes up with an amateur player? Yeah, the, the rules are, um, they're, they're pretty restrictive. And in and, and this space, you're not able to benefit from name image likeness, even by having your profile raised. Now, what is social media other than trying to kind of create your own image for yourself, raise your profile. And when you start to promote or start to have companies help you promote your own image, even if you're not getting compensated, that your profile is being raised. And so it's that, it's that area. We, we, in, in amateur golf, especially at the younger level, there's, we, we don't believe there's a whole bunch of money changing hands. And there could be on the expenses side, but what there is happening is a lot of agreements and a lot of promotion 
um, thank you company X for helping me out with, with Y, whatever it might be. Those types of things are, they're sort of, they're sort of okay and they're sort of not okay depending upon how it's happening. And so that space being, you know, you have a 16 year old golfer that is trying to look like their friends and frankly, their friends in other sports that again, don't have these rules. It was very difficult for us to find the line of either you can allow name image likeness to happen or where we were was basically you couldn't do anything at all in that space. And so somewhere in the middle doesn't really make a lot of sense when you look at the landscape of, of the way the world was going. And that, that's why we got to a pretty quick decision of we probably need to just let the market take care of it, lift those rules. I can speak to kind of why we got to name image likeness, which I'd like to. It's, it's quite a bit different than what the public sees from the NCAA, what was driving that change. Our interest was a lot more intrinsic inside to be able to figure out why NAL should be removed and if we could we could live in that space. And we felt like ultimately about 2016, we started to say, yeah, I think we can do that. Can you get, add some more insight as to maybe what that intrinsic value was and what led to that moment in 2016 where you guys really wanted to turn the page on those rules? Jordan, so if you if you look at the high profile, let's move away from Lucy Lee and golf and look at more high profile cases in collegiate sports. A lot of what was what was that kind of groundswell behind college athletes need to be able to to benefit from their NIL. It was it was mostly about really high profile players leaving lots of money on the table. And I won't put dollars and cents behind it, but a lot of money on the table. And we've already seen some of that with some of the early adopters with NIL and in, in, in the collegiate space. What we were looking at from the very beginning here is it's more of the tension between the rules of amateur status already allowing for expenses. So college golfers, young golfers, old golfers, they, they can all access expenses to help them compete, to help them uh, grow their game, whether it be coaching or instruction, uh, weightlifting, mental game, et cetera. All that stuff is okay but the promotion element gets added onto it is that part's not okay. And we often get, especially from the junior cohort, that the idea of parents saying, I need help, golf is expensive, we recognize that. Our drive was for access. It wasn't to try to allow for young golfers that are world beaters to suddenly cash in. That's not what this is about. It wasn't what it was about then. And so ultimately for us lifting NIL rules, we do believe that there's gonna be so much more access to just capital to play the game access to play the game. And, you know, I would think that in 10 years from now, the U.S. amateur is going to look quite a bit different. The U.S. women's amateur is going to look quite a bit different because there'll be access for golf to younger golfers that just, they simply don't have it right now. There might be a, a young golfer that is local that's not able to move to the regional level. There might be a golfer that's regional that's not able to move to the national or the international level. And we don't think this is going to be the the ultimately the club manufacturers. We don't think it's going to be Fortune 500 companies. We think it's going to be local businesses that say, "I believe in golfer, the young golfer in my town, and I want to support him or her." That the company being able to say, "I'm doing that," that's that's going to be really important to them locally, and the golfer being able to thank them locally is also going to be important to that company. And so we do think there'll be a reciprocation of that. It's a call it access, call it democratization of just being able to have funds to be able to play this great game, especially at the junior level. And NIL was, was really holding that back. And that's, that's when we really started to get comfortable with it. How would this work in the landscape that we have? Expenses, again, as I said, are already allowed, but NIL really puts a damper on how well they can be utilized and accessed. And, and by lifting that, we're not going to get in the way of college sports anymore, which is great because that was already attention. If we lift our rules. What does it look like in college golf now? Now that college has moved, 
we're able to move even more comfortably than we were before. But what's in it for businesses and what's the value in executing a marketing concept surrounding college golfers? So can you explain a little bit about what your ambassador program contains? Like, is there a way that you've worked it out to where the player will post about it a certain times a week? Like, how, what does it look like? Yeah, so I'm in the beginning stages. Like I said, this is fairly new for for all of us. Um, we just pretty much talked about just a simple, what we thought would be a fair price. And I gave her a lot of product, a lot of different types of uh tour lines that she can use give to other friends as well and yeah we came out with just a rate just a, for a couple posts a month so we'll just start off with the post uh, maybe a couple posts a month see how that goes and then continue on for sure and you know whatever products i have um it's definitely hers so we'll probably come out with some more we did have clothing at one time um we're probably in the works of doing that again definitely hats so um that's just all going straight to her for sure. And that's pretty much how we probably, how we'll have it. Does it work that way with uh, people outside the college base, like with the professional endorsements? Um, so, you know, for the most part, yes. But with me, I've built such a close relationship with the people that I've named that have helped. They just want to help. Um, and the money that I have starting off really isn't... <laughs> impacting them like they're millionaires right so um a couple bucks here and there isn't really that i mean they're not really sweating that so i've actually been fortunate enough to have that go forth and a lot of people just want to do me favors um and that's good they're in a position but with college players like i understand i I was in college too and you know the money i mean you still got food to get and bills to pay every now and then things you want to do so uh, I think that I kind of see this as me helping out a college player and supporting them as well. Can you kind of describe um, what the engagement has been like? Because like you say, um, college golfers really do kind of fit this bill, for the most part, um, of this micro-influencer term where they've got a decent-sized following but not something that you would call like massive or anything, but the engagement rates tend to be really high. What's that right. meant for like your conversions and your traffic overall? Yeah, I mean, it's way better, um, like I said, than kind of the, I guess, as macro influencers or the influencers that have 50 or 100,000 followers and things like that, and the people on tour, um, which is good, because, you know, they're engaged, like, I reached out to Marissa, and she responded right away, she was fully engaged, Um, like I said, that connection is there. Um, with the people a lot more, and I think that's just really um, influential, and that gives a lot more conversion, uh, for sure. You mentioned Swing Juice as one of your partners, and I think you have a few others, which I want to get into for a little bit, but what are the kind of companies that have reached out to you or that you've pitched to? What, I guess, is like the idea circle of brands that you like to work with? I, I really, I really was focused on trying to work with brands that that I enjoy uh, or, or things that were part of my interests. Um, you know, like it wouldn't, it wouldn't make much sense for me to try to partner with a candle company because I don't, I don't burn a lot of candles in my apartment <laughs> or, or in my house back home, you know? And, and to me that just, I wanted to, I wanted to, to partner with folks where it made sense. Um, 
And, and so I've, I've, I have partnered with one company in, uh, in Chattanooga, Tennessee. I was invited to play in the, the Choo Choo Invitational, which is a great amateur tournament up there in the summer. Um, and, and there was a gentleman there that, uh, that I met, uh, playing that tournament that runs, uh, a chemical company there. And I, and I understand that, uh, like there's probably not a, a, a much of a, a line that can be drawn from me to a chemical company either. Um, but you know, after he and I talked and, uh, he told me what he wanted to do and, um, it, and, and it was really for him, it was all about, you know, he, he said that it was a way for him to give back for, for the 20 years that I did in the army and things like that. And, and let's face it, like we all use everyday household chemicals and stuff in our yard or whatever. So, um, and so, yeah, we, we worked out a thing and, um, and then there are other, there are other folks that I've partnered with that it's not monetary at all. Um, a company called Gearsay, which is, a I think it's a, a really cool website that they're, that they've put together. And what they do is they highlight athletes from all kinds of different, uh, sports and what from cycling to boxing to golf to you know whatever and and it was really i think an outlet it was it was a place for people to go and look at professional athletes and see what gear they use and what kind of training methods they use and to get you know tips on on what to work out and how to do this or that or whatever and now they've added the amateur side to that too and, and they've put some collegiate players in different sports on the website and and it's again it's just it's another one of those places where it's it's not a monetary thing it's just about getting your name in front of as many people as possible and and um and the other part that comes along with that is whenever somebody sees my name they're also going to see Christian Brothers University, and and I think that's a big part of it too. Like I want to represent this university well, um, and and it's a university that, you know, if I can bring some good attention and, and get eyeballs on it that otherwise wouldn't have been on it, then I definitely want to do that. Let's look at the bigger picture. What does any of this mean, long term, for the scene of amateur golf and the college golf pipeline? Does the USGA kind of foresee the pipeline of maybe juniors who decide that they want to remain amateur and forego the idea of college golf entirely kind of shifting with this legislation coming about? It's, it's possible, but college golf is, it's pretty good at, and, and a pretty good track record too of developing the best golfers in the world, getting, you know, preparing you for the professional game. And you look at the world amateur golf rankings you look at collegiate golf, they're, they're pretty similar of, of who's playing where. Now, will that eventually change? It's possible that it will, but there's also, these, these programs are so good at developing talent. It's going to be difficult for many juniors to, to forego that. Um, that landscape is obviously, it's very complicated. There's a lot of things going on there. There's international golfers as well. There, frankly, are national golf teams in, in most uh, countries that help develop juniors and they don't all go through collegiate programs. So that space could see a little bit of change, but I, I do think in some respects, allowing for NIL to be something that can happen when you think of what college programs are doing already, come to my school, we will help you through this. And, and so now it's almost that players are able to, to uh, have some benefit from their NIL and frankly, not just the benefit from what can show up in their bank accounts, but they're also having the benefit of professionals that can help them through that at the school. I think we'll start, we'll still see quite a few players go through that system just because it's so good at developing talent, both the men's and women's space. For sure. And even past that, as far as a retention standpoint goes with 
players who want to stay in the game, but they don't want to turn professional and they just want to remain amateurs competing in mid-ams and eventually senior amateurs. Um, just how well does the USGA kind of foresee that retention aspect going when, you know, obviously you're outside of your NCAA eligibility and real life kind of hits you and maybe golf is not the focal point of someone's life anymore. Yeah, it, it's that question in and of itself is very difficult. Um, you know, the best players in the world are probably going to continue to turn professional. That's that's the likelihood. We'll, we'll still see them. I mean, what's the drive of the best players? It's to play and compete against the best players. We know where those players are playing. They're on the LPGA. They're on the PGA Tour. So we're probably still going to see that. Whether or not we continue to see players kind of stay in the game, Part of that is, again, it's the access issue. You, you need to have access to funds. And will companies step up and help fund mid-amateur golfers? I'm not sure that's the case. Locally, you'll probably still see a lot of players stay there. I mean, on the women's side, there's a whole different element of starting a family and, and how that takes you away from the game, starting your career. Those things are difficult transitions. And I've, I've worked in a state golf association space and Mid-amateur golf on the women's side is really challenging. And frankly, there's not that many events for women's golf. So the industry as a whole is aware of that. It obviously kind of switches away from amateur golf and it gets more into some DEI aspects. But women's golf in that, in that just call it the 22, 23, up to almost the senior game, there's less players competing at a very high level. There's a whole lot of reasons for that. We don't think that amateur, the rules of amateur status are why that's happening. That's something kind of outside of that space. But there's still going to be a drive for the very best to play against the very best. Will those others continue to compete at a very high level? We hope so in the amateur space, but not, not sure that our rules specifically are going to change too much of what happens there. That's more of a social construct. So more leaning more towards um, USGA's decisions kind of leading into July 1st. Um, and you could definitely correct me on this timeline and how it played out. Um, did you guys revisit it as the interim policy had come up? Was it just right after? Because you mentioned that there were a couple of wrinkles that you guys had wanted to iron out and there were some conversations that took place over a weekend. What did those look like? And maybe what were the, the concerns coming in to kind of make sure you guys had some conjunction with the July 1st policy? Yeah, the, 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 Biggest surprise for us was the inclusion of agents. That, that wasn't something that we expected to be part of what the NCA was doing. And, you know, we were, we were prepping to be able to release something when July 1 was going to come and states were going to show up with their laws. And what was that going to look like? When the NCA, and, and I, I don't want to say they backed away completely, but they, they pulled back from most of what was happening with respect to NIL. What we needed to figure out how to do, and we needed to do it quickly, so just the weekend for us was, was pretty quick in our world, was to try to figure out a way that we were trying to be as, dis, as least disruptive as possible to the collegiate space. When did that happen? Well, it happened when college golf was out. It happened during the height of the summer golf season the height of the elite amateur competitions that were happening all over the world. And so this is a kind of a global question between the RNA and the USG. How do we get through this? There's, there were, you know, if you were looking at social media of a lot of the best college athletes, not just golfers, there were deals that were being struck, you know, midnight and change, and they were already out there in the public space. And so we were trying very, very hard. And, and these, these are through some of the connections we have with coaches associations to message just please don't do anything. We're going to come back to you on Tuesday. That happened to be the 4th of July weekend. 
frankly, there was staff and resources that were already um, planning to do things uh, over that weekend that weren't golf related. And, and so we just took some time to make sure that we could be comfortable with whatever decision we made. That space, as you talked about earlier in our chat, it was state laws. It was college golf compliance offices. It was sometimes conferences and the rules were different all over the world and of, of collegiate sports. And so trying to figure out how we could fit into that space ultimately where we, we netted out was that we just need to take a step back and let what the NCA has put forth, that being your school might be where you need to go, your compliance office definitely where you want to go. The state laws might take precedent. If there aren't state laws, it might be your conference, it might be your school. And we just let decided we needed to let that that uh, that framework take take hold over the summer for for collegiate golfers only. It's a very small group of the amateur golf world. There's about twenty thousand golfers in all of college sports. Um, Jordan, we have done our messaging part through surveys to players, to surveys to coaches. Uh, to at the tune of about 10,000 right now, there's about 20,000 collegiate golfers. You know, those players that teed it up in, in the uh, U.S. amateur, the U.S. women's amateur that ha happened at Westchester the week before, they were probably pretty sick of us sending messages saying, can you please answer these questions? What we were trying to do with those questions is to confirm that they understood that they did have eligibility, uh, some, some issues if they were outside of college sports and they still needed to follow rule six, those that were in college, it was okay for them to go ahead and benefit from NIL. And we were able to pick up some red flags. We were able to talk to players to say, Hey, you know, it's a little too early for you, or just make sure you talk to compliance. We don't want you to get outside of what we have put together of what the NCA has put together. Ultimately, we want players amateur status to be protected in a way that they know the decisions they're making would be a breach. So all of that time we took in the week was how can we best put together not only the rule and, and how we'll carve out something, but how can we message players appropriately and educate players appropriately? And that extends even beyond the players, tournament organizers, et cetera. When we back out of NIL, that means there's no logo policies anymore. So you have a, an elite amateur event that is taking place somewhere in the world and all of a sudden a bunch of players show up in logos. And they're like, what is going on? We need to be able to get out to them too. So it was a pretty big messaging system from, from us to be able to not just speak our own megaphones, but to reach out to all our partners and allies to say, can you please also message this to make sure that people are aware of what's going on. What did the feedback from coaches and players look like in that time that you were trying to collect data and bring about a good level of understanding? Because in a lot of my conversations with collegiate players just within like the past month or so, it's always the biggest concern. The number one concern is I don't want to violate my amateur status. I don't care about the money part, whatever else. I just don't want to violate my amateur status. That's always the forefront of these collegiate athletes minds. So I'm just curious, like, you know, where did maybe the confusion come about? Was it just within like the specifics of rule six? So we, we have lifted rule six for collegiate athletes and that, that has, what has the response been like? It's been, it's been a thank you. We've, we've had coaches, our calls with coaches, both on the men's and women's side, we've messaged both of those organizations. And ultimately there, you know, when we get to the question section, there's really not any questions. It's a thank you. Like this, this is going to work for us. We, we can follow what our compliance departments are telling us we need to follow, which college athletes are already very comfortable with. You know, the, the rules of amateur status as they are today, compliance officers are aware of that golf's a little bit different. Now they can continue forward knowing that golf's a little bit different, but in the NIL space, we can do whatever we have decided we need to do. And the NCA is continuing to give those compliance departments information. 
the thing that golf has said, the rules of amateur status, when I say golf, has said, just follow the rules as they are set out for NIL, and you're going to be okay for those players with respect to their amateur status, as long as they remain a collegiate golfer. So that's given them the flexibility to work with and what the NCAA provided to them. That gives coaches so much peace of mind. That gives players peace of mind to say, okay, I just need to go to my compliance office. When I go to them, I speak to those officers and they say, yeah, you're good to go. Jordan, what you want to do is just fine. Then they're knowing at this point, because we have done such a strong uh, messaging campaign with respect to education, that if my compliance officer says it's okay, I'm going to still be able to retain my amateur status through whatever I might be doing. When you're tying your interests with the university, and especially a big element of this is reporting your NIL deals and all the work that you're doing, you know, what's that process like? And, you know, has that been pretty seamless? Have they been good on the compliance and educational aspect? They have, um, you know, from the very beginning, as soon as I, you know, kind of, uh, you know, uh, I struck the, I call it the Twitter deal with Barstool, um, <laughs> I, you know, my, my coach reached out to me and he said, Hey, let's, you know, we, we've got a couple of things that the university's putting together. And, and, uh, and so, yeah, so basically just reporting that stuff and what's included in it to them. It's just a, I mean, it's a pretty simple form and, and I understand like, you know, there are a lot of moving pieces to this NIL stuff and the, the university wants to be protected. They want to protect me. Um, you know, and, and every, so just so that everybody's best interests are, are being served and, but it, it has been seamless. Um, it's, it's really funny. We had a, a big athletics meeting and the NIL stuff was part of the kind of briefing that we sat in and, and, uh, the, so the NIL comes up on the screen and, uh, and she says, who knows what NIL means? And I raised my hand and she looked dead at me in the front row and said, yes, I know you know what it means. <laughs> and, and then went on about, um, uh, but it was, you know, a, a pretty cool little moment, but yeah, it's, it's been seamless. They, you know, the folks here have been great about it. And, and it's also one of those things that, you know, I don't want any of that stuff to interfere in what we're doing as a team and, and, you know, our goals and, and what we want to accomplish this season. Um, and it's, it's, it's really one of the reasons, like if you follow me on social media at all, you really haven't seen me post a whole lot about it since I've been up here. Um, and there'll be the occasional social media post, but I'm like actively, I'm not actively talking to anybody at this point, And I won't until, you know, at least we get to winter break or at the end of, you know, spring semester or whatever. Like I'm, I'm not going to be in conversations or doing any of that stuff during the season. Um, I just think it's an added distraction that I don't need. And, and I think I owe it to Christian brothers and to my teammates to, you know, make sure that my focus is completely on the golf course and what we need to do to, to get better and to win. So, um, but yeah, it's been a, it's, it's been great. Everybody here at the university has been great with it. Our, our SID athletic director, my coaches, um, it's been, it's been awesome. It's dedication like this though. That's a major sell for many companies. Having played college golf yourself, um, you know, was that, was that definitely a big boost that turned you towards the direction of these micro influencers, so to speak? Yeah, absolutely. Being in that position as well and just kind of knowing how much this um, would actually help and just being able to, pro I mean, like I said, it's the future. It's, this is where everything's going. Um, that's one of the things I told Marissa too, like kind of this is going to help start, um, help your brand grow. Hopefully, you know, that's the idea. Um, once I, like when I played professionally, once I started getting sponsors, um, or having companies on my logos, 
then they kind of made other companies see me as valuable and want to give me more money or more enticed to give me money. So um, hopefully this helps her brand grow. Uh, hopes, you know, other companies see her as, as valuable and hopefully she just gets more and more opportunities, especially if she keeps playing well. It's a good educational component in terms of the business side of golf because kind of beforehand, you know, you'd leave college and then, okay, now you're entering this completely new territory of having to acquire sponsorships and endorsements right. and whatnot to kind of make it through and figuring out. It's essentially adulthood kind of hitting you in the face. Um, but what kind of aid do you feel like NIL will give, um, you know, athletes like Marissa? Yeah, it's be, it'll be interesting with golf. I mean, I'm, I'm hearing in such sports is like the top um, Nick Saban's quarterback is already almost a millionaire. Um, I mean, that's that's kind of some of it's life changing for a lot of people right away. Um, but for golf, especially in college, I'm not sure if it'll be it won't be anything life changing, but it'll help. Right. It'll, it'll help. Um, especially they'll hopefully they'll be able to save up and get ready and put them in a good position just to play in more tournaments um, and get ready for when they do turn professional. Um, hopefully they can, you know, have something already saved up or um, be freed up to just go out and chase their dreams with a little less financial burden. But how you sell that dedication is arguably just as important. One specific tool I want to ask you about is your website, which... I don't know how many other college golfers I know with, I think a few who like specifically had like junior results and maybe things that they ran by their parents, but I don't, I can't think of many that come to mind that actually have a website that have kind of branded themselves with. What led you to do that? So I, you know, you and I talked earlier about you know, I, I told you that I don't I don't sit still very often, and I'm and I've kind of over the past twenty years being in the army, like I've worn a lot of different hats along the way, and you know, it's I think sometimes like when you if you have too many messages and you're trying to put it into a Twitter stream or on Facebook or Instagram or whatever, I think those messages can get muddled a little bit, and so what I wanted was a place where I could a uh, tell my story, b um, any of those brands and partnerships that I had, I, you know, it, it's another place for me to kind of put those things out there and give folks a chance to see the, the people that I'm partnered with. Um, and then the other element is what I call be elite, um, which is, uh, it, it's, I, I wouldn't even know how to get into explaining all of it. A good friend of mine who's a football coach um, near Fort Benning, where I've been for the last eight years, um, it, it's something that that uh, he's kind of developed over the last few years and something that he's talked to his teams about. And it's, it's kind of this evolving philosophy. And he and I talk about it all the time. And I call him, he's the godfather of Be Elite. Um, but being elite is essentially being the best version of yourself um, and, and each day trying to be better than you were yesterday and then trying to be better tomorrow than you were today. Um, and, and we talk about a lot of different things in, in, inside of that and, and the, the pillars of being elite, which you can find if you go to the website and click on the, the part that says be elite. And, um, you know, I, I think a lot of times when you talk about an elite athlete or an elite this or elite that, you immediately think of results. 
And, and we talk about all the time that being elite isn't results-based. Being elite is all about in being in that journey and being where your feet are and not focusing on what the end goal is, but focus on those little individual goals that you have to accomplish to get to the main goal. Because if you do all those little things, you'll get to the big one. Um, and, and so it, it was a great way for me to put that stuff out there for, for people to see that and for me to kind of, you know, when we do, when I do have thoughts about other stuff and things that I want to add to those, I can go to that website. I've also got a blog that's on there where I've kind of, you know, up until I haven't really posted anything on it since I've been here at Christian Brothers. I wanted to kind of give myself a couple of weeks and and feel my way in, and then kind of write a post about what these first few weeks have been like. But but yeah, I mean, I've got the blog on there that I've kind of I've kind of posted some different stuff along the way over the last few months and and kind of my journey to this point and. I'll continue to put that stuff on there. So I, I thought it was a good idea to, to put something like that together to kind of put all that stuff in one place where, you know, people can really go see the whole, if you come to my Twitter feed, I mean, right now you're going to see me posting about wearing masks and getting vaccinated and, and what's going on in Africa. Like you, you don't really get the full picture when you go look at somebody's Twitter feed. But I think if you can send them to a website, you've got a, you've got a little bit more of a broad playing field and you can, you can tell a little bit more of the story there. I also got some insight on this from Cooper Lukenda, a college golfer and hockey player from St. Olaf College, who merges the best of both worlds on a long-form platform. For companies and Cooper, having such a thorough outlet is only an advantage in NIL. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. Like, it's it's a different, um, like, interaction with that. Uh, My first video I made when I was doing that, like the first sponsorship video, it was completely a miss for me. I didn't know what I was doing. I was kind of just like flying by the seat of my pants, hoping it worked. And I think it was okay. Um, it's an advantage in a sense because you can like integrate it into a video and people who want to watch the video kind of have to at least skip through that part to uh, see the rest of the video. As for Instagram, you can just kind of scroll on. But uh, I think as you know, anyone grows through YouTube or Instagram, it kind of just comes with, with size. So and a following, so um, either one I think works. TikTok's Kyla Golfs, aka Kyla Bonowitz, a freshman at Hawaii Pacific University, has a devoted 79,000 followers on TikTok and has already seen the benefit of her hard earned following. You've got like a totally different background than the average college golfer who's kind of exploring that now, where you've been creating various types of content for a while and you've got the following to back it. Do you feel that kind of offers you an advantage when you're either like pitching or negotiating? Um, I feel like it definitely does. Um, like they kind of like when you're, when you're talking to companies and things like that, um, I feel like the biggest thing is like, they, they ask you about your social media. It's like, what is your TikTok handle? What's your Instagram handle? What's your tip Twitter handle, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I'm assuming they ask for those things so they can look at it and see like what you post, what you have to offer. Um, and I feel like just like image is like just a really big thing um, because a brand wouldn't want to partner with somebody that like they don't, they don't have like the same views as um, a potential like client or whatever. But yeah, it definitely helps. NIL offers a lot of freedom to college golfers, but there's still some no-nos. Um, one thing I did want to ask was maybe, and you don't have to call anybody out specifically here, but what's 
probably been like the most outrageous deal, whether it was like the terms of the deal or just the kind of product that a company wanted you to advertise? Um, I, I, I will, t- I, I won't, I, like, like you said, I, I won't name any specifics or anything like that, but I did have, um, I don't know the best way to describe it, honestly. I guess um, it's an adult, um, not like adult films or anything, but like adult products. Um, (laughs) 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 um, X-rated adult products. Um, I I had one of those companies reach out, and and I had to politely tell them um, that not only that I can't do it, but I, but I wouldn't do it, and uh, but yeah, and that one, I, I'm not gonna lie, I, I chuckled a little bit and uh, got a good laugh out of it. But yeah, that's probably the most outrageous one. <laughs> I bet that was the last thing you thought would hit your TS. <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I didn't see that one coming. I'm not gonna, not gonna kid about that. One burning question I think that a lot of collegiate golfers have had, and maybe just like the biggest concern, is the instruction component. Um, is that slated to change within the new year or is that still in the works or will that remain the same? Yeah, so that we, we are, the interim policy is just lifting the, the, the name image likeness parts of the rules of amateur status. We have for you know, forever had a, a prohibition on instruction. If you think of purely what does that golf coach do, what does the, the PGA Tour or the PGA or LPGA Pro at your club do, they give instructions one-on-one basis. They help you to understand the game of golf in a way you pay them for it. Um, and those one-on-one lessons are the traditional instruction aspect. Now, the rules of amateur status over the last 20, 30 years have continued to evolve. If you think of the college golf space, there's a lot of college coaches out there that give instruction to their players. There is a, an exception within the rules of amateur status. Even though amateur golfers cannot give instruction, you can if you're, a, if you're a coach with an educational institution and said instruction is less than 50% of your time. You talk to any college coach, it's like 5% of their time. They're so busy doing everything else administratively, teaching their players how to swing a golf club. For those that do, is a very small portion of their time. That also is really valuable in the high school space. There are other exceptions in the rules of amateur status for instruction that apply to like coaches at, uh, at camps. So if you're at a camp and you do a whole bunch of stuff, you can also teach the game of golf. The first T is considered an approved program where you can just give instruction um, uh, through that program. Now, how does this apply to the college game? Back to your question. We are not planning to lift the instruction prohibition. And so we went and that that's that's the, the rules of amateur status kind of saying, hey, we're here too for golfers. You talked before about golfers not wanting to lose their amateur status. And ultimately in this college space, that's where the rules of amateur status are a little bit different than in other sports. And so we really did want to highlight that one. That was one of the focuses on education was to say you can do anything NIL related, but instruction's not NIL related. That's instruction in and of itself. So you need to still stick within the constructs of that particular rule. You can certainly promote the fact that you're now a first tee instructor. You can promote the fact that you're helping out at your college's golf camp, but you can't just put up your shingle on a driving range and say, hey, I just won this big tournament. I can help you swing a golf club. Come see me. That, that promotional part is just fine. The instruction part would get you into trouble. So that's where that, um, that, that line is still drawn, just like it is today. There's certain things you can do with instruction, certain things you can't. If you want to layer in, well, now you can promote it. You go right ahead. Just don't do the things you're not allowed to do. 
all of this in mind, just two months down the road, where do we go from here? What are your future plans for your collegiate ambassador program? Are you working, or like working out things with different athletes? Or do you have it on hold? Like, what does it look like for the next few months? Yeah, um, this is pretty much a test run. This is one of the first people. This is the first person that I've reached out to and really saw as a, a good opportunity for this. Um, I have some others in mind. But we want to see how things go with Marissa and then eventually add on, um, reach different regions, uh, male, female, um, and just try to spread around and catch all the different different demographics and get her brand out to as many people as possible. To maybe other other small businesses or companies that are hesitant about the NIL landscape or working with college athletes, what would you say to them even so freshly in this partnership? Oh, no, no, this this is the college. I mean, I definitely see this as a way to go for companies. Um, one, as a business, for sure. And you're starting to see this in the golf industry. I'm not sure about other sports, but in the golf industry, you're starting to see more of a shift towards the influencers. Like you're starting to see a lot of social media stars um, doing interviews. One of my boys, Roger Steele, he's doing Adidas ads, the USGA media day. They're really pushing them forward, um, Tish, uh, who else, Troy Mullins and all of them. And in a business standpoint, I hate to say it, but they're more affordable than guys on the, and girls on the PGA Tour, but they're also more effective. Um, but I think that's going to be the same for the college players. Like You, you don't have to break the bank and spend $50,000 or whatever for one appearance and you probably won't even be happy with your conversion rate. You're going to get the biggest bang for your buck with these college kids, and it's really going to impact. And you're not it's not like you're taking advantage of them. They're really going to get a lot out of it as well. What kind of influence has maybe the feedback from leaving Rule 6 had on the proposal and just touching up the modernization of the NIL rule as far as, as it goes for all amateur golfers and when that comes about which is January 1st 2022 right that's when that starts what kind of influence has that had the, the only the only thing I would say our rules will come out Jan 1 2022 um, we're not yet approved yet things are looking certainly like that's going to happen um, but where, where we are at this point is this NIL waiver policy that we put into effect for the NCA and, and their changes it it gave us quite a bit more confidence even than where we were before. You know, we, we recognize that this is a little bit different than why the NCA probably ended up where they did. It, it's about access for us. It's about trying to make sure that more golfers can play the game of golf, especially at a young level. Yet we were aware that there are going to be some world leaders. There are going to be some generational talents that'll do quite well. We haven't seen too much of that in amateur golf yet. And that actually gives us some more comfort to say, look, these kids can already, if they want, they could sign million dollar deals. They could sign deals that are bigger than that. And there are some very good players in collegiate golf. That hasn't happened the same way that it has happened in football and basketball, et cetera. So I, I, at this point, we, we recognize that this, this access decision that we have made from some time ago, let's go ahead and lift this rule, let the market take, take care of it. It gives us more comfort to say that I, I think we actually are on the right track. You know, again, we're, we're just going into our approval process in the fall to be able to get the rules ready for 22. 
we're, we're still there. We're still seeing this happen in the college space. And we've gotten through both of our junior amateurs. Those are large fields, very, very talented young players, some of which play collegiate golf, most of which don't. And yet we also just went through our amateurs, the highest level of amateur golf. There weren't any issues, even though most of those players were all allowed to already start benefiting. We're pretty confident that we're in a position that the market is going to take care of these players the way that we'd like it to, and yet not, not go too deep into most players because when companies are trying to sponsor players, they're looking for eyeballs if they're going to put a lot of money in. And yet amateur golf doesn't really have a whole lot of eyeballs on it when you compare it to what happens in the professional game. For sure. And um, one concluding question, just kind of want to um, get your personal insight and maybe the USGA at large. What's been the most rewarding aspect of developing this policy, enacting it for collegiate golfers, just even within the past two months? Like what if maybe like the intrinsic rewards have been for you as part of someone who has been involved with the rules of amateur status for so long and the USGA at large? If it's specific to this policy, I would say that it's working. Um, I, this this was this, this was a shot in the dark. We didn't really know. I mean, frankly, the NCA college sports world, nobody really knew what was going to happen. We saw some logos at the U.S. Amateur that were not logos you ever would have seen before. They were on the, the heads of some collegiate players, and uh, they they had filled out our surveys. We knew they were coming. I mean, it was it was kind of a our educational push and kind of what's about to happen. I mean, there was, there was a bit of a cringe factor. And yet when these players showed up, we were comfortable that we had done what we needed to. I and mean, this is so much of what the USGA does. We're trying to get advanced and, and trying to get in front of things with communication and education. And it worked this time and it worked in a, in a I mean, it wasn't just the rules, rules department. It was our champ administration department. It was player services under Jason Gore. There were so many different departments that were trying to help get this message out. And the other organizations with coaches trying to message their players, it worked really well. And yet we're now almost all the way through the amateur golf season, the summer season, and it still seems to be working well. So I guess the takeaway is that we, we did re have to react to what the NCAA did. We had a huge foundation of confidence that we had built over the previous four or five years, but so far it's working very well. The, the junior players, they're not wearing a whole bunch of logos because we've told them they can't yet. Senior players are in the same position. College players, there's a few logos that are popping up. Generally speaking, though, most of the, the college players that we talked to, we surveyed, they're just like, you know what? I, I'm just waiting a little bit. I like my college golf. They're, frankly, my college is taking care of me in a way that works, whether it's through scholarships, whether it's through the way that they're funding their own school. There's not a whole bunch of money in NIL for most players. And, and so ultimately we see this being something that the market is, is going to take care of the game in a way that does allow for access locally. Yet at the same time, this, this interim policy hasn't, certainly hasn't created too much of an impact. It just, that was the whole purpose. Let's not create too many waves as we get through the summer. We still need to roll out the entire rule to all of golf. Again, juniors, seniors, club level golf, all the way up to the highest level of collegiate amateur golf. And we still feel confident that we'll have that time in the fall to do so. We unpacked so much there, and I feel like we could have spent literally all day chatting NIL and everything it has to offer. But the reality is, with the school year starting, the landscape is only going to grow even more massive. College golfers back on campus means tapping into the localized aspect, and when TV time comes around, 
any smart company is going to be looking in to grab the endorsement of the NCAA's best. The incredible reach of some of these influencers and their platforms is only growing more and more valuable, and the trajectory is likely greater than any of us could even predict. Still, it's time for these kids to cash in, and I'm glad we could cover all things NIL and college golf for this first episode. We're just getting started here, and I hope it wasn't information overload, (laughs) but if you stuck around for this long, thank you. You are the absolute best, and there's definitely more to come. Until next time, this is Amateur Hour with Jordan Perez. See you.